You're listening to Public Health Matters, a new podcast brought to you by the Institute of Public Health. My name is Marisa Fagan, and I'll be your host for this podcast, highlighting key public health issues across Ireland and Northern Ireland. Over the coming weeks, we'll be speaking to experts about the big public health issues of the day and what lessons we can learn from past challenges. So stay tuned to stay informed about public health matters and what matters now. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Nora Campbell, Associate Professor in Marketing at Trinity Business School, to talk about the power of food advertising and how it influences what we eat and presents a public health challenge. Welcome to the podcast, Nora. We're delighted to have you. Thanks, Marisa. I'm delighted to be here. Looking forward to talking to you. Nora, a lot has changed in the advertising and marketing world since the arrival of digital media. There was a a recent World Health Organization report highlighting digital media as a driver of obesity. How exactly does, you know, advertising and marketing influence what we eat? Marisa, when I teach marketing 101, like introduction to marketing, what I always use is an image of an iceberg. And I say to students, look, advertising is the visible part of the iceberg. And it's certainly something that we all think about when we think about marketing. But actually, the major part of marketing goes on invisibly underneath this iceberg, so to speak. So digital marketing is kind of the tip of the iceberg, the kind of visual part Um, And before the visual manifestation of marketing is a whole range of very, very sophisticated, wide ranging uh, processes, uh, technology and professionals. So, for example, there is a whole area called market research. So we have dedicated modules, dedicated programs dedicated to market or market research. And this essentially is consumer analytics, everything from looking at digital heat maps of consumers to the whole new field of consumer neuroscience. It looks at consumer ethnographies, anthropologies, consumer psychology. And so, for example, a a great number of private multinational food companies will use neuromarketing uh, to test uh, reactions to uh, memories of certain brand packaging. Yes, that's that's fascinating. So like, I mean, it's really uh, the application of science. It's all very sophisticated. Is there any kind of examples that you could highlight just to show exactly Mm -hmm. how it works? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess this field of consumer neuroscience has been uh, pioneered since about 2004 with the growth actually of neuroscience as a scientific field in its own right. So consumer neuroscience is the application of this field and it uses a number of uh, particular technologies to essentially bypass consumers conscious manifestations of their preferences so you know in a survey you can say do you prefer this brand or this brand so essentially what a consumer neuroscience is trying to do is bypass that conscious uh, manifestation and get at unconscious pre-verbal preferences using techniques such as um, it's a very fancy one called electroencephalography. So it's basically looking at um, movements of blood and oxygen in the brain to track 
uh, uh, preferences. So maybe a, a kind of famous one um, in recent years has been the adoption of consumer neuroscience to uh, Frito-Lay, which is a brand, a snack food brand that's owned by PepsiCo uh, to investigate why consumers love particular brands like Cheetos, which are a brand of kind of very uh, uh, luminous orange flavored puff cheese uh, crisps. And uh, the results from the consumer neuroscience showed that consumers find a certain combination of guilt and pleasure on having um, that kind of a luminous orange on their fingers. And what uh, marketing, uh, what brands, food brands do with this type of information then is build it into brand campaigns. So that directly, for example, uh, that example led directly to a campaign uh, that had uh, this orange dusting all over people's kind of faces and hands and in a kind of furtive kind of secretive sense in order to play into um, uh, the consumer's kind of pre-verbal unconscious reasons why they prefer or they are stimulated by certain snack food brands. That's really interesting. I mean, for the mm. average consumer probably mm. doesn't realize the mm. the sophisticated methods that mm-hmm. underlie, you know, you know, an advertising or marketing campaign. I mean, is it fair to say that the average consumer wouldn't really be uh, aware of these sophisticated methods? So right since the beginning of market research as a field in the 1920s, uh, it has always used the most sophisticated, uh, both qualitative and quantitative tools. So when we see consumer neuroscience um, brain scanning, which is EEG scanning or fMRI scanning, like, you know, that um, and magnetic resonance imaging you see in hospitals, for example, is used in order to track blood flow in the brain. But there are also other technologies such as eye tracking devices, skin sensation tests to test uh, when uh, the skin starts to perspire. All of those are used. Um, um, it's, it's sophisticated in the sense that it's highly technological, but there are even more sophisticated uh, ways of analyzing consumers' motivation for things such that a consumer, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but when uh, you approach a food product uh, like a junk food brand you love it and eat it compulsively and you're not even sure why so it's not necessarily just the technology that is sophisticated it's also a very sophisticated research methods from uh, anthropology from uh, the social sciences from psychology that are uh, deployed um, so, I mean, it, essentially, it means we're not totally in control then, really, because we're this is the power of suggestion and uh, tapping into the unconscious. Is, is, is that what's really happening then? You know, when you look at the eras of advertising um, uh, over the last maybe 100 years or so of food, uh, the advertising uh, rhetoric has changed massively too. So advertising in the 1920s and 30s used to be very informational. And this is uh, what this box of biscuits is. And uh, you should buy this box of biscuits because it has this much sugar, etc. And it would present the box of biscuits to you as if it was a sales item. And then in the 1950s and the 1960s, the kind of big revolution that happened in advertising was that products became 
to quote an advertising historian, apostles of modernity. And by that, I mean that um, products um, became the solutions to people's family problems, love problems, social problems, existential problems. So you have, for example, advertisements in the 1950s and 60s that will show a homemaker, a female invariably, a homemaker that is making her husband a cake. The husband will come home and try the cake and say, "Mm, it's not as good as Betty makes it in the office. And then cue the kind of picture of the uh, woman uh, realizing that there is a threat on the horizon and in comes Betty Crocker with cake mix as the solution. So um, th- that, that was a pivotal moment from moving from an informational didactic way of saying this is the product to saying actually it, it, a, a product is simply a, a vehicle or an instrument to, towards the true solutions you are looking for, which are comfort, happiness, sexiness, coolness, you know, um, Um, uh, intelligence whatever it is just to come back to that recent um world health organization report on overweight and obesity rates in in europe i mean it it, it was saying that we're now at epidemic levels and in ireland the uh we're above the eu average for for both adults and children i mean Obesity is a complex disease and there are many factors at play but do we know to what extent you know Advertising, marketing and promotion of food is linked to rising obesity rates, you know, given how sophisticated and the, you know, the methods that you outlined there. And certainly since 1992, Ireland has created uh, myriad strategies to counter this uh, trajectory and uh, tr- to try and shift the weight of the entire population. And over those 30 years, there has been an increase of uh, 23% uh, overweight and obesity to uh, over 30% overweight and obesity in this country. And I think now more recently, we are starting to realize, Marisa, that uh, um, obesity is a, a very complex neurobiological mechanism. And it's, it's starting to be understood outside of niche medical researchers. Um, and I suppose we are starting to understand that obesity and overweight are, there's definitely a biological predisposition for obesity or overweight at the individual or at the family genetics level. So there are slender people there who will have a natural predisposition to being slender. But what we are starting to understand is that the environment itself, the food environment that we are in, is changing the weight, not of individuals and families, but of the entire population. So even if you are a slender person, you are less uh, naturally uh, slender than you were two decades ago. Um, So what, what I think we are starting to understand is that obesity and overweight, of course, it manifests differently at the family level or at the individual level, but we are starting to see a consistent trend at the level of the entire population and the entire population our weight has changed as a nation and it has shifted over to the right of that curve of overweight and obesity just to pick up on something you said there you know i mean because that that is sometimes trotted out you know why why can't we just educate people more about 
what we should eat you know is that not part of the solution but you mentioned that that was kind of tried in the 90s and we've moved on from that and you know I suppose we have a greater understanding of some of the complexities that are there because it's it's not it's not black and white I suppose but but you're saying that there is a need at this stage to address this issue at a population level. Education is often called the curse of knowledge because it feels really good when we can come up with educational packages. But what we know about the, the human body and its, uh, and its environment and obesity, it is just as complicated um, at the other end with the human uh, mind and its psychology around obesity. Um, so, for example, I have a colleague in the United States uh, that uh, explores and does research in the area of vicarious consumption. That's the idea that when you live through someone vicariously, you have that kind of feeling of, you know, I've gone on holidays just by hearing about them. So vicarious consumption is a very established phenomenon in consumer psychology, whereby um, when you stimulate a consumer by uh, putting a, a virtue a goal towards them, they will then be more likely to go for a vice goal afterwards. But what my colleague in the United States shows that it's the mere suggestion of a healthy um, offering can stimulate the uh, person who's making the choice towards the least healthy choice. When McDonald's, for example, puts a healthy item on what's otherwise an unhealthy menu, it is not directing consumers towards a healthy item. It's actually stimulating consumers' vicarious consumption because they feel they have consumed the healthy item just by being proximate to it. And they are statistically significantly more likely to choose the least healthy item on a menu when you have a healthy item on it. That's really interesting because, I mean, what you're saying is that, you know, there might be healthy options on a menu in a fast food outlet, but that's not going to really work. And and I suppose to some extent, our minds are tricked (laughs) into, you know, going for the fast food option. So I would be an advocate, Marisa, of a banning mcdonald's uh, or any other junk food uh, fast food uh, brand i would i would stipulate that they are purposefully not allowed to have healthy items on the menu that that place is a categorized as junk food and if you want to go in there there is nothing there's no diet drink there are no carrot sticks there is nothing there that is a healthy option and what that does is that it is it aligns better to human psychology so human psychology when it comes to eating is binary we unfortunately just it's we are hardwired to go towards virtue goals or vice goals when we eat and what happens then when these two messages are confused is we then end up overeating and eating unhealthily when we are trying to be healthy because all brands then have to do is create a health halo around their foods by saying, you know, here's Kellogg's with a a new innovation of a crunchy nut breakfast bar with extra iron. The the brain's messaging system is so confused by that um, and it then sees iron 
sees I need iron and will eat the junk food, which is categorically what that food is. So um, what we need to do is actually make junk food much more junk and healthy food uh, to be much clearer on, on what it is. So to, to replicate the binary better in society and food culture would ironically uh, make decision-making in an obesogenic environment much easier. And you, you mentioned something else there I was going to pick up on, you know, the idea of treats, you know, this is something that's kind of crept into our psyche, I suppose, and how we live, you know, and the food industry tells us that eating treat, we should eat treats responsibly and be treat wise. I mean, how has this message come about? Um, and, and does it really come down to self-discipline as an individual? Food is constantly innovating. And the fastest category that is, is innovating is snack, the snack food category. What uh, snack food companies then do is to uh, they create this oxymoron of responsibility on the one hand and snacking uh, on the other. So what I, myself and colleagues did a couple of months ago was to take uh, data from a global kind of market information database. We looked at the tonnage um, of chocolate, ice creams, sweet biscuits, etc., of sales across Ireland. And we saw collectively from chocolate confectionery, you know, everyone is eating uh, seven and a half kilos of chocolate per year. And um, so that's 145 Mars bars. Um, it's an ice cream. It's 48 Magnums and sweet biscuits. It's 18 packets of biscuits and soft drinks. It's 136 bottles and, you know, packets of sugar confection it's 100 packets of skittles and when you add all this up and say well actually in order to maintain the sales and growth of all of these snack food companies we would have to eat an inordinate like extremely dangerous amount of snack food every day for every single man woman and child living in this on this island and um, so it is uh, what i call a uh, a Janus faced strategy. So Janus face is like the God who has two faces. On the one hand, um, if you are a um, junk food multinational, you put out community games packages, uh, you lobby government, you have a CSR page, uh, you know, you say all the right things in your um, uh, annual reports. And then on the other hand, you have a shareholder report where you're saying, yes, we are aggressively growing this market and we are aggressively entering into these new markets in different geographic areas which have less regulation because we know that this, this type of product doesn't have traction anymore in the West because of the regulatory kind of barriers. So it's Janice faced in the sense of maybe it's just a fancy way of saying it's two faced and it's it's utterly two faced. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you the question, you know, is, does it reflect kind of a double standards, you know, within the industry, you know, saying one thing and kind of doing another? I don't think there is any individual who works in a food uh, multinational uh, or any food agency 
who is a bad person, who wants children to be overweight and obese, who wants this country to have premature deaths linked to everything from cancer to suicide from stigmatization. There's no one who wants it. And rather, what uh, all uh, of those companies are engaged in is profound disavowal. And that profound disavowal is what I and my colleagues call lean wishing, a kind of more nuanced way of understanding it is that if you work in a junk food brand, you are hoping that the small things you are doing in order to abate, uh, reduce or reverse obesity and over and overweight in this country are enough to make it happen. Um, and you are wishing, wishing that will happen. So is there an element of good intention there, yes. but it is, it is intention. It doesn't, you know, mean yes. it's, it's going to work. It's yes. not a strategy, so to speak, or. It's, okay. exactly. And, and I think we are in, uh, when you look at the WHO report, when you look at government, Irish government policy today, we are, we are still um, as public health uh, campaigners, as government institutions, uh, we are still hoping and lean wishing with all those corporations that the, that these interventions, as particularly as laid out by the WHO, are enough to slingshot us out of the catastrophe, but it won't be enough. There surely are some lessons that we can learn from our consumption of other unhealthy products, you know, such as tobacco and alcohol and how they've been marketed and how they've been regulated as well. I mean, are, are, is there, are there lessons that we can take from those, those industries? Absolutely. And I, I, would, I would love that um, Ireland would pioneer some of these in the way it has been so brave in pioneering uh, other extremely um, visionary uh, public health interventions, uh, like, for example, the smoking ban. So when you look at the smoking ban, why it worked wasn't because we were educating better on uh, tobacco. What we did was we created a new uh, type of space. So we said, you won't be able to use this space to smoke anymore. So it was a kind of architectural approach to intervention. And so from a food perspective, we need to think about architecture, new space times of food. So for example, the architecture that prevails now is flexibility and convenience. So we all eat our uh, lunches at uh, computers, uh, we buy ready-made meals, and all of these things uh, are very advantageous to the junk food industry. What we need to uh, uh, approach it with is a new culture of inflexibility and inconvenience and by that I, I'm kind of provocatively using negative terms but what we need is interventions at the top level to have specific dedicated times in the day across all organizations and institutions where we all dine tools and cook and eat together. The other thing that we know from our interventions is that we need to have a more an absolutist curtailment of marketing. 
Um, essentially what I would advocate for is plain packaging. So imagine going into a centre and that wall of junk food uh, was all in white packaging with just the names of the food, you know, Cadbury's Dairy Milk, Tato Cheese and Onion in plain black and white type. That is much better intervention than food reformulation. It's a much better intervention than uh, restrictions, education, etc. because it stimulates cultural change. And just has that has anything like that, like plain packaging will be quite a bold move when it comes to, say, ultra processed foods. Mm -hmm. But like, has that been tried anywhere at all in around the world? No, it hasn't. And um, I think the most advanced we uh, thinking on packaging uh, today comes from colleagues in, in Paris who uh, are trying to get a, a EU wide directive for a particular uh, a nutrition labeling on all food called NutriScore, which is a very uh, robust and um, very psychologically easy to process uh, scoring mechanism. So, but even that I don't think is enough. I think we need to uh, both have a carrot and stick approach. The, the stick being a real stick that absolutely uh, takes away the kind of um, the stimulus uh, of our food packaging, but also a carrot that reconstitutes, replaces uh, the position of food in our actual everyday lives. But in order to do that, we cannot say to people, oh, you know, here is more information on food. We have to give people more time, not more information. So and you're talking about there, you mentioned, you know, we had breastfeeding kind of towns and spaces. So you're talking about we could foster something similar in terms of, you know, maybe not even using the word healthy eating. Is there anything that comes to mind in terms of what would what could work without, you know, without virtue circling or anything like that? And I think that you, you get to the crux of it there. Healthy eating is an oxymoron. It turns everyone off. We should never use that phrase, healthy eating. It's just so alienating to 99% of us, including me. I hate the term. Um, I used to work in an architectural um, uh, agency in Berlin. <laughs> and every single day from 12 o'clock um, to 1 o'clock, um, everyone in that uh, organization had to sit down and eat lunch all together from the CEO to the cleaner and one person every day and so you had to do it about once a month had to cook the food and you'd have to spend the whole day doing it and you'd have to stop your emailing stop your meetings you'd have to do it and then you would cook the food and present it to 30 people whether it was sandwiches whether it was you know it's a junk food no matter what but everyone had to come, everyone had to stay, everyone had to turn off devices, and no one was allowed to be away. And what that did was, as you say, create myriad social co-benefits and psychological co-benefits and physical co-benefits. And so um, when we think in public health in Ireland, we need to think more spatially and temporally rather than more educatively or regulatory. 
I wanted to just briefly touch on COVID-19. We, we've just been through two years of COVID-19 and the pandemic, and that has influenced our eating habits. I mean, I think there was one study suggesting that children, half of the children, Irish children, were eating more junk food during that period. Is that something that we should be concerned about? It, it's too early to tell what the long term eating pattern is post COVID and whether a lot of those eating patterns, w- which are in a dutifully negative and bad. I mean, all of us were eating unhealthily during COVID and there is a recent IUNA study on teenager uh, food consumption in Ireland. And we have been like teenagers were eating extremely poorly, but all of us were. So there's no um, debate as to whether food habits improved or disimproved in Ireland during COVID. They got worse. But what we don't know yet is whether we will retain a lot of those eating and alcohol consumption habits or whether they will shed away as we uh, our, our patterns change. Again, I think, you know, the worst thing we can do as a, a as an island working together to try and figure this out together is to create another set of reports on here's what we were eating during COVID-19 and here is a kind of policy statement or strategy that says what we should do going forward. I mean, obviously it's necessary, etc. But what we need to do is to be much more um, design thinking led about the solutions. And from for, by design thinking, I mean, we need to pilot lots of little things. I want to see more trialing of things and uh, more uh, interventions that are about giving something a go. And then if it, and to do it cheaply and in a way where we can fail faster at the things that don't work. And that because we are such a, a entrepreneurial open uh, island, we like we will try anything if given a chance. And the one thing that is so uh, turgid and stagnant and linear and slow moving is food policy in this country. Yeah, from what you're saying is like, we know the scale of the problem, but we're not maybe being innovative or creative enough in in the um, interventions that we're, we're developing or implementing. Exactly. And it's, isn't it Einstein that says, you know, that the, a sign of madness is asking the same question again and again and expecting a different answer. When we go with these paradigms of let's reformulate the food, let's restrict advertising, let's educate people, let's put responsibility in the hands of parents. These are all the same questions. And we are, WHO is still doing it expecting there to be a fundamentally different answer. There's not. There is so much more we could cover on this topic, but unfortunately we've run out of time, but it's been a pleasure, Nora, and I really appreciate your your time and your insights. And I do hope we can have you back again another time to discuss what is a fascinating topic. Um, So that's it for this episode of Public Health Matters. Thank you for tuning in and please do send us your questions or thoughts. You can email us at communications at publichealth.ie. And if you want to keep up to date with the Institute, you can sign up for her newsletter on www.publichealth.ie or follow us on Twitter. 
Until the next time, thanks for listening and take care.